Good afternoon. An arrest in the leak of the century. Where is the security? Russia and Ukraine headed for bloody stalemate. A view from Denmark on the Nord Stream bombing and Trump's enemies. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Drianzo with The Torch on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live. In the news, a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman was arrested by heavily armed FBI agents at his home on Thursday. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the arrest. Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas Teixeira in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal, retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. Teixeira is an employee of the United States Air Force National Guard. FBI agents took Teixeira into custody earlier this afternoon without incident. He will have an initial appearance at the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts. I want to thank the FBI, Justice Department prosecutors, and our colleagues at the Department of Defense for their diligent work on this case. This investigation is ongoing. We will share more information at the appropriate a judge ordered Teixeira held without bail until a hearing next week. Teixeira is believed to have leaked documents on the Discord Gamers website, where he headed up a small group and discussed his interests in games and guns. Prosecutors are expected to reveal new details about the allegations charging Teixeira under an Espionage Act provision, making it a crime to remove, retain, or transmit national defense information. Shortly before the arrest, Pentagon spokesperson Brigadier General Pat Ryder warned anyone possessing copies of the classified documents documents that they may also be in danger of prosecution. The department is taking the issue of this unauthorized disclosure very seriously. We continue to work around the clock along with the interagency and the intelligence community to better understand the scope, scale, and impact of these leaks. And just as we're limited in what we can say about the DOJ's ongoing investigation, we'll be also very limited and what we can say about any of the documents themselves. And while we certainly understand the media's interest in asking questions about the contents of these documents, I will highlight that as a matter of longstanding policy, just because classified information may be posted online or elsewhere does not mean it has been declassified by a classification authority. Those of you who have been covering the Pentagon for a long time know that we're just not going to discuss or confirm classified information due to the potential impact on national security, as well as the safety and security of our personnel and those of our allies and our partners. And for that reason, we will continue to encourage those of you who are reporting this story to take these latter factors into account and to consider the potential consequences of posting potentially sensitive documents or information online or elsewhere. The classified documents have been authenticated by government officials. They include briefing slides mapping out Ukrainian military positions and assessments of international support for Ukraine. Meanwhile, a report released by the Washington Post based on eavesdropping by U.S. intelligence of the Russian military says China has approved the incremental provision of weapons to Russian forces. Labeled top secret, the report was highly restricted and released as part of the tranche of documents leaked in the past few days. They were confirmed as accurate by the U.S. government, who stated some had been doctored. The United States has been promising a spring offensive by Ukraine to recapture territory that was captured by Russia in the year-long war, but some observers say it's more likely the offensive won't come as the war settles into a stalemate. 
part owner and former editor of The Nation is Katrina Vandenhuvel. She's an expert on Russia and was friends with Russia's last communist leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. Vandenhuvel says the leaked documents show the United States government has been lying to the American people about the war in Ukraine. We've been told something else before these documents have been leaked, which is that Ukrainian and Russian losses were maybe comparable, but what we're seeing here is Ukrainians killed in action outnumber Russians four to one. I mean, we're looking at some 71,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed in action, according to these documents, as opposed to some 17,000. The war goes on, the weapons keep going, but those in power know a different story, which is how weak the Ukrainian army has become. And whether that emboldens those who seek a ceasefire or peace accord or not, it's something that has to be understood. I'd say the other piece that is important in the documents, Paul, is that the United States and NATO are massively and critically involved in arming and training Ukraine and providing detailed intelligence to the Ukrainian armed forces, which means without this help, Ukraine might perhaps be able to stand on the defensive, but it could never hope to launch this planned offensive. We're all focused on the spring offensive to recapture the remaining territory lost to Russia. There's a lot of weight being put on the spring offensive, so to speak, but it's not clear. And many who are experts in battlefield politics strategy don't believe anything will be resolved. It will continue to be a war of attrition and inch by inch. It looks like it's shaping up to be a mega battle if it actually you know, breaks out in that way. And from what you're saying, it doesn't seem uh, that's really realistic. The air defense missiles. The Pentagon documents state that Ukraine may run out of these this month. And the Russians appear to have a quite a big trench in holding that they have not used. The bombing, of course, has led to the ravaging of Ukraine, but they have more. That has to be understood. The prospect of, quote, tilting the battlefield, quote, in Ukraine's favor, resting on this anticipated counteroffensive seems more and more unlikely. You had uh, a member of NATO, Turkey, helping Russia, apparently. You have Israel, Mossad telling his people to protest its own government in the streets. Somehow this is linked to Ukraine. Other countries, South Korea, having now an internal crisis in their government. What needs to be looked at very carefully is the collateral damage of this war, the global response to the Russian invasion. While the nations of the world, with few exceptions, have condemned the invasion, the vast majority have chosen to stay neutral in the conflict. It's very important for your listeners to understand that the United States may become more isolated as a result of this war, not Russia. The major independent countries of the South, Brazil, South Africa, India, as well as China, see Ukraine as a great power conflict and are conscious of the U.S.'s hypocrisy sermonizing about a so-called rules-based order. There are alternative parties such as Lula flying to China, I believe, today with a peace plan. Macron, however discredited at home, has tried to be a broker. And what we've done, divided a world in this kind of crusade we're running as a foreign policy, that we're divided between dictatorships and democracies. And at that conference President Biden held at the end of last month, Israel and I think the Philippines were invited. So that moralizing doesn't assist in a real 
realistic-based view of the world. The battle between that the world is somehow divided between democracies and authoritarian states, and this is a war against the authoritarian states. De-democratization as a concept and as a reality began under Yeltsin, not simply under Putin. But the strategic, tragic, horrific blunder of this war, what it has done is exposed how weak Russia is, not strong. That's something to think hard about. But most important, I think these documents, if read correctly, should embolden those who are trying to seek a ceasefire peace agreement, because the forces which seek additional war are not disinterested. You're looking at the rise of a military industrial congressional complex in this country, which is quite staggering. And it's powering the worst forces in all societies, the nationalists, the jingoists, the extremists. We should try to find a way to a ceasefire or a peace agreement and understanding that it may be very difficult for Ukrainians who have a right to be enraged, outraged, angered. But the longer this war goes on, the more difficult it will be to put the country back together in any free, independent way. Taking this clear-headed analysis of the situation, if we don't get control of this, if there's not a movement in the streets, if the the people in the left who are divided, if they like Ukraine or they like yeah. Russia, don't figure out a, a way to go forwards, like for peace or general sort of united front type of action, what do we have to look forward to? You're right, Paul, that never has the need for a global peace movement. International peace initiatives been more apparent, more needed. A way to jumpstart a kind of peace movement is if the climate movement joined with the anti-nuclear movement. I don't think there will be intentional use of nukes, but the danger of miscalculation as this war goes on is not to be discounted. I would put it in the context of an international peace movement. There have been protests in Germany against the war in European countries, not on the scale of this country, but I can't wish it into being. We do have a lead editorial this coming week in the nation seeking such a movement trying to speak to that movement and the dangers and perils of this war it's not siding with anyone it's condemning russia's invasion wishing ukraine the most hopeful outcome but it is also drawing on forces around the world which have seen global south i'll end paul by saying what is security in the 21st century after the pandemic the idea that security was treating pandemics, fighting pandemics, fighting nuclear proliferation, global hunger, insecurity, climate, these have been sort of put aside as things have been worsened by the impact of the wars. Let's find a way to come together, not in necessarily friendship, but a kind of realistic partnership and understanding that war should be the last resort. We're witnessing 19th, 20th century warfare like World War One, with 21st century weapons. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is part owner and former editor of The Nation. And progressive journalist Dan Kovalik has recently been to the Russian-held Donbass region of Ukraine, where he reported for this news program. Kovalik says the documents say more about the weakness of U.S. security than about Russia. The fundamental thing was the fact it was leaked at all from the Defense Department shows there are people in the Defense Department that are concerned about the direction this is headed, right? That they are afraid that the U.S. administration is overpromised what's happening in Ukraine, that Ukraine's going to, that they're on the verge of victory. They've been saying that for over a year. 
And I don't think that's the case. They're actually on the verge of defeat. This document suggests that someone in the Defense Department, probably more than one person, wants people to know that that's the reality. So you don't think it was gamers on the uh, Minecraft discussion board challenging each other to prove their point about Ukraine that led to this? That's what they're saying, implying anyway. Either we have terrible computer security, and yes, some gamers can hack into it, which I don't think is probably likely, or someone in the Defense Department leaked it for their own purposes. And again, we've heard different statements. A lot of what we know from the documents and even from the fact it was leaked or We've known for some time the Defense Department is much more wary about what's happening in Ukraine than the State Department. The Defense Department has been much more dovish on Ukraine than the State Department. They're concerned that we could lose this, that this is going to be a disaster, and it's the State Department, people like Blinken, that have been pushing this war, claiming we're on the verge of victory. Of course, they're not people, honestly, who have the expertise to know that. And I think, again, the Defense Department may be trying to put some brakes on this. Do you think there's going to be a spring offensive, like they're saying? They almost have to try to. This is as much a propaganda war, if not more, than a military confrontation. Mm. And they have been now promising for some time they're going to have a major counteroffensive. I think they have to, and I think the U.S. is pushing them to. It's getting harder and harder to get approval from the governments of the West for these munitions to Ukraine. One, because the West is running out of them, but also the public's getting sick and tired of this war. They have to prove some kind of advancement, some kind of gains to show the people that this is worth supporting. So I think they have to have some kind of counteroffensive to do that. So they will try, even though that means they're going to do it probably without proper weaponry and ammunition, even though they're going to do it, again, as we know, by recruiting, forcibly recruiting elderly people and young people off the streets of Kiev and giving them very little training and throwing them into battle. But I think come hell or high water, they're probably going to, going to try something. Reminds me of what I read about uh, Napoleon's march on Moscow and Hitler's attack on uh, the Soviet Union, that these were they thought it would be an easy knockover. This is a third world country teetering without means to match the high tech advanced technology and industrial capacity of the uh, aggressor nation. And yet, in the end, Russia pulling it out of the hat. Those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat it to people in Washington. They don't know their history and they are repeating it and they will find the same fate that the French and the Germans did. That's my prediction. Anything like that? I was in Russia in Donbass in November. I'm returning next week. And again, what I saw in Donbass was that people there, at least in that region of Ukraine, had a very different view of the war than we're hearing in the West, that they were actually happy that Russia intervened because the government in Kiev had been attacking them since 2014. And they certainly believe that they're fighting a war very similar to the war they fought in World War II against the Nazis. The results will be very similar. Progressive journalist Dan Kovalik, he'll be reporting for the torch from Russian-held Donbass later this month. In more war news, the entire Russian Pacific fleet has been put on high alert for snap drills that will involve practice missile launches. It's a massive show of force amid tensions with NATO and the United States. The foreign ministry says the goal of the war games is to test the capability of Russia's armed forces to mount a response to aggression. 
The Pacific Fleet drills started days before a planned trip to Moscow by China's defense minister. And the movement to release WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange gained momentum this week. On Capitol Hill, Representative Rashida Tlaib is asking fellow House members to sign a letter calling for the Justice Department to end its prosecution of Assange. The U.S. has been attempting to extradite the Australian journalist who faces up to two centuries in prison if convicted of espionage. He spent several years in the Ecuadorian embassy in London before being arrested. Assange is currently being held in Belmarsh Prison. Progressive reporter David Lindorf is a regular commentator for The Torch. He says the Australian government is getting involved. There's evidence that pressure is growing in Australia such that this labor minister now, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, and he had campaigned saying that if he were lucky enough to win the election, which he won really handily with a full majority, that he would use his authority as prime minister to tell the U.S. that it was time to close that case down. It had gone on too long. When he didn't do anything for a year, he's been called out on that. It seems to have had an effect. Right after that five newspaper and magazine joint editorial that ran on the 28th of November by the New York Times, The Guardian, Le Monde, Der Spiegel, and El Pais, all running the same thing, saying that the case was an atrocity and had to end because it put freedom of the press in jeopardy all over the world if it was prosecuted. It was a pretty powerful editorial. And then all these demonstrations in Australia and in England put a lot of pressure, I think, on Albanese to take a stand. And he has, apparently, he says he's doing it through diplomatic channels, not like frontal assault kind of thing, but he's made it clear publicly that he thinks the case has gone on too long and enough's enough. And the biggest thing that happened as evidence of a change is that the High Commissioner for Australia to the UK, who outranks the ambassador uh, to their embassy, as a diplomatic official in England, went and visited Assange, and Assange had said that he didn't want a consular visit if it was just to come and check out his condition. He wanted to be able to discuss his case. Under those terms, the High Commissioner visited. The two of them had an agreement not to talk publicly about what they discussed, but uh, the High Commissioner also said that he planned to make further visits on a regular basis to the prison, which is totally new. I mean, the last government's conservative and Gillum, the last labor prime minister, had nothing good to say about Assange and no stand at all on his being an Australian who was being abused by the U.S. So uh, this is a big change, I think. And, and it's hard for me to see how the U.S. can ignore a key ally like Australia that he should be like, oh, I can imagine different scenarios. I mean, I can imagine that the U.S. would drop the case, that the U.S. just would drop the extradition and leave it hanging on Britain to what to do. They'd have no excuse to hold him anymore if that happened because the Swedish charges have been completely dropped, or they weren't even charges, but the Swedish desire to have him come over and answer questions has been dropped totally can't lose votes in the United States telling a foreign leader to go jump in the lake, especially in a case like this. How the hell does the U.S. think it's going to get any any leverage to get Americans out of jail in other places if they just blow off their own allies? I think they're in a little bit of a spot. they got people even in Russia that they're trying to get let go 
it looks, you know, incredibly hypocritical uh, at a very high level. It's a precious building on Washington. I mean, maybe I'm an optimist. It really does look terrible, and it is terrible. Albany said, look at Chelsea Manning, who was found guilty of stealing these documents. She's out. Meanwhile, Assange has been locked up or trapped in an embassy since 2012. Even if he said that he was guilty, he's already been punished, and he hasn't been tried or even had charges you know, placed against them yet. Albany is on pretty solid ground, and the people in Australia are getting angrier. You know, I can imagine a face-saving way that U.S. has used in the past to get up from under these things. They, they pass the person to the home country and say, he's your responsibility, and they send him over in irons, and then the other country lets him go. That's what they did with these kids that they had in Guantanamo. They'd send them to Canada. How does this relate to the uh, recent Ukraine documents that came out? It seems like... Uh... That is an amazing story because they're trying to say, well, you know, they've been docked. First they said, we don't think they're real. Then they said, well, they seem real, but we think they've been docked. I mean, after all, look, it's an incredible disaster for the U.S. because it shows up that actually these things are real and that most of the stuff they've been telling us about the war in Ukraine is, is BS. I cannot believe that the left has adopted uh, once again whatever the U.S. says is good and we're doing the right thing. And, you know, we what we really did boneheadedly was prevent Ukraine from cutting a deal that would have ended the problem and had a neutral Ukraine and with monitors from the U.N. and a no NATO advancement, and that would have ended it. And they didn't do it. They went Crimea back, which is never going to happen. Short What's of a it? nuclear war trying, that's just not going to happen. Before this happened, when there was the civil war going on over the Donbass, I was in Finland, and I, I made a trip up to Lapland in a rental car to see how the Laps were handling climate change. And I had interviews all planned up there at their Sami parliament. On the way up, there were these young people on the side of the road hitchhiking. And I picked up two, a young man and a young woman. Both One was a college grad and the other was uh, finishing a, a doctorate in engineering. They were both hitchhiking and, you know, got in the car, and they were Ukrainians. I said, what are you guys doing, you know, away for the summer? And they said, no, we're away from the draft. <laughs> and they were like us in the 60s and early 70s, you know, with all these people fleeing to Canada to avoid Vietnam. And we don't want to die for a civil war that's attacking ethnic Russians in the East. We want out. <laughs> and that's increased. There's been a massive flight of draft age, which is a very wide bracket, men from Ukraine. We don't hear about that. We hear the heroic ones that are, that are going out and facing the guns. There's a huge vote against the war by feet. Progressive reporter David Lindorf is a regular commentator for The Torch. The Trump administration decided in 2019 to seek Assange's extradition to the United States and charge him with allegedly violating the Espionage Act. And you're listening to The Torch from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In more world news, former President Donald Trump used Fox News host Tucker Carlson's show Tuesday to infer the Biden administration had something to do with the bombing of the Nord Stream gas pipeline. Carlson asked Trump who blew it up. Who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline? Um, 
I don't want to get our country in trouble, so I won't answer it. But uh, I can tell you who it wasn't was Russia. Yeah. How about when they blamed Russia? You know, they said Russia blew up their own pipeline. You got a kick out of that one, too. It wasn't Russia. Trump is not the first one to blame the West for the explosion. Investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch cited an anonymous source in February blaming U.S. Navy divers, an allegation the administration says is utterly false and complete fiction. Longtime peace activist and journalist Ron Ridenauer resides in Denmark and once lived near the island, apparently used as a base of operations for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines. He says, without a doubt, NATO and the United States were behind the explosion. This state where I am is not even a country. You know, they have given their sovereignty over to the United States without even being forced to do it. They have no balls. They have no sovereignty. They have no self-respect. And they're involved because, you know, Bornholm, I lived in Bornholm for four years. It's just a little way over from that island that is in Denmark where this sabotage took place. And Seymour Hirsch, of course, knows the truth. The whistleblowers that he have, they're as important as Chelsea Manning was. So, of course, they did it. There's no doubt about it. Russia had to defend their sovereignty and make this special military operation. He said, if Russia does this, there will be no North Stream. Why does nobody think in the mass media that this is significant? He let the world know that he was going to do it. And then these ridiculous idiots come around and say that Russia did it themselves. I can't even understand how ludicrous this world is today that this can even be considered. You lived on Bornholm Island. Tell us, what is Bornholm Island? What's it like? <laughs> it's a very daily, daily, that's a Danish word. It's a lovely little island, 40,000 people. It's got cliffs and rivers and the sea and many trees and plants. It's a beautiful place. Wasn't it the site of a lot of stuff in the Cold War, though, it was because it's close right. to well, Russia? Yeah. In the Second World War, Russia had to take over because the Nazis were there and they didn't give up. The Nazis on the mainland in Denmark gave up 4th, 5th of May, 1945. And the Nazis that were occupying Bornholm didn't give up. So the Russians didn't come into Denmark, nor did the Yankees. It was the Brits that came in here. But somehow or another, the Yankees get to be the heroes in all of this. The Russians, who were supposedly allies, right, they took over Bornholm. In the course of doing that, they had to kill some German Nazis. And in the course of this scuffle, some Danish civilians got killed too. Some Danes will think that, you know, well, this was Russia's fault, and some think that it was Nazis' fault. The Russians were there for uh, another few months, and then they left. And the Danes in Bornholm, they thought they were abandoned by the mainland, and they have their historic problems with that. The Russians were not brutal. They did not do anything evil to the Danes on that island, but some Danes did get killed in that conflict. The Russians are coming, it sounds like, via movie from the years ago. Again, I've been Mm -hmm. following this for a long time, and I was inspired by Oliver Stone's documentary with President Putin. I mean, this is a man who tried for 22 years to be partners and friends with the United States. He wanted to come into NATO. He asked Bush to come into NATO. He helped Bush 
in Bush's war against the Taliban. He allowed him to use two military bases they had. He uh, gave them intelligence. He asked to come into NATO several times. He asked Bush to stop the CIA from using terrorism in his own territory. And Bush basically told him he can't stop the CIA. President Kennedy said the same thing to France, de Gaulle's government. He couldn't stop the CIA. Truman couldn't stop the CIA. The CIA, my God, act basically rules. They're the mafia of Wall Street. Maybe it was orchestrated by the, uh, by the CIA ultimately. The CIA doesn't have to do the actual diving. Mm. They're, they're very much involved in whatever happens. Anybody who really is following this war knows that the CIA is there in many places in Ukraine right now. And they're using NATO mercenaries to shoot the, the most advanced missiles. NATO is already in Ukraine and they're doing their best to start a third world war without perhaps using the ultimate biggest bombs that would destroy us all. If Russia doesn't win this battle, the whole world is going to be fucked. But I don't think the West is going to win this. It's going to be very much better for most of the global south, as it's called. 80% of the populations, the governments, don't support the Yankees in this. Only the lackey states of, of Europe and, of course, the Commonwealth and these Zionist fascists, the West is really rotten. And I can only hope that the global South will rise up and get rid of the dollar. How do you like to be introduced? A very angry, indignant old man who has always fought the best he can for justice for all, for civil rights for all, and for peace. Longtime peace activist and journalist Ron Ridenauer, he resides in Denmark. And in local news, Donald Trump answered questions for nearly seven hours Thursday. It was his second deposition in a legal battle with the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, over his company's legal practices. Outside the lower Manhattan offices of the Attorney General, Trump was met by protesters. They were chanting, New York hates you. The lawsuit is different from felony criminal charges filed against Trump by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. Meanwhile, Trump had a word for protesters. He called them the biggest threat to America. Who's the biggest problem, sir? Is it China? Could it be Russia? Could it be North Korea? No, I said the biggest problem is from within. It's these sick, radical people from within. Because we can handle, if we're smart, we can handle Russia, China. I did. Last August, Trump invoked his Fifth Amendment right not to answer questions at least 400 times. Yesterday, he answered all the questions put to him. Trump's lawyer says the former president outlined his extraordinary business success, but is slated to appear before Schiff's committee on Thursday. And Daniel Ellsberg, the former defense analyst and whistleblower who leaked the Pentagon Papers, the secret State Department review of the Vietnam War that showed the government knew the conflict was a lost cause, even as they were telling Americans they were on the verge of winning, has a statement to make himself. Facing a century in prison, Ellsberg gave reporters for the Washington Post and New York Times copies of the documents that were soon published. Criminal charges against Ellsberg were dropped when it was discovered the administration of President Richard Nixon had been spying on him and had broken into the offices of his psychiatrist looking for dirt. Ellsberg says the whistleblower who made the complaint about Trump's conversation with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is facing a moment when courage means everything.
I have, of course, been in the position of this whistleblower, whoever she is or he is, okay? And I had similar choices to make. Now, in this case, the whistleblower, we'll just say they, um, has chosen to work entirely at first through channels, uh, doing what the whistleblower laws require and what their uh, their um, own safety from prosecution requires. In other words, the whistleblower so far is safe from prosecution because they have done what the law demands, and that is that they go to the attorney, uh, inspector general, that they complain to their own bosses, they go to the inspector general, and they rely on him to inform Congress of their information, complaint, accusation, if he judges it to be urgent and uh, uh, credible, as he has. Now, so far, that whistleblower has taken no risks of prosecution, although genuine risks of a career, uh, if they if their identity becomes known, which in the past has been likely to happen, and they they suffer for it. So the whistleblower has already shown some real courage and patriotism here in taking a risk. However, it has not informed the Congress or the public. The uh, director of, of, in, of Central Intelligence has yielded here to a judgment from the Trump Office of Legal Counsel, the Trump Justice Department, which has generally up to now looked pretty corrupt as a uh, acting almost as a personal lawyer for the president uh, uh, in the face of, of credible evidence of presidential malfeasance. What should the whistleblower do uh, at this point? If it is as important in her eyes or his eyes as she appears to think so far, uh, then I would say, from my own experience and judgment, uh, this let's call her she, but they should strongly consider risking her own freedom, her own career, her own reputation to inform the public, to inform the Congress, to enable them to fulfill their constitutional obligations by going to Congress directly, uh, revealing herself, going to Congress directly, and if Congress uh, holds it up, telling the public. In fact, I would say go to the media at the same time as the Congress under these circumstances. I would not advise the whistleblower to short-circuit the, the congressional process here, um, and 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 I would uh, wait, if I were her or him, to see, to see if Congress can't use its own constitutional powers to get that information. But if they fail, as they have so far, if they continue to fail, then go to them directly and go to the press directly and inform the public. The price may be very large, personally. I faced a, a, a possible sentence of 115 years for doing that, and I took that risk, and I think I was right to do so. And um, um, Ed Snowden um, has accepted a permanent exile, essentially, for having informed the public of criminal action by the National Security Council, uh, I'm sorry, National Security Agency, NSA. Uh, 
clearly criminal. Uh, Chelsea Manning revealed clearly criminal activity in terms of torture uh, and, and paid for that with seven and a half years in prison. Yes, this person could be um, risking a prison sentence. Uh, not certain because of, it's clearly uh, right for her to reveal criminality if she believes that has occurred and has evidence for it um, But uh, by the president. But she would do that at her own risk. And what I'm saying is that risk could be worth taking and could be very beneficial to our democracy. So I, I'm not aware of anybody else, and I, uh, I'm the one who's in best position to raise that issue right now. What the whistleblower should do or should consider doing if Congress fails to get this information, and not only the transcription of this call, which the president may deliver, but all of the acts that the whistleblower has alluded to that uh, seem to reveal a pattern of criminality. Ellsberg adds that Nixon considered destroying the incriminating tapes he had made of White House meetings when the House began its impeachment investigation of the Watergate break-in and its cover-up. Ellsberg says Trump is just as capable of destroying evidence. Is it beyond question that he would clearly obstruct justice or clearly violate the Constitution here by just destroying evidence that the House has asked for and is entitled to get? Well, of course he might do that. Uh, you can't put any limit. I would say any limit at all on what he might do to preserve his reputation. He doesn't care that much about his reputation with people other than his base. But to keep in office and to avoid uh, prosecution, he is very concerned. So, of course, he might do that. And um, as I say, Nixon might very well have gotten away with that. And he would probably get away with it in terms of the Senate. Uh, it, the Republicans so far as far as I can see, have not shown the slightest willingness to hold him accountable to the Constitution or to the law. In effect, they are enabling and abetting a strict violation of the Constitution. And uh, uh, they should be ashamed, but then we have a president who is shameless, and would, it might appear that uh, the Republicans in the, in the House, in the Senate, are equally shameless. Uh, and for that matter, in the House, they haven't joined this in the House so far. That, again, has slowed up Pelosi uh, to this point. She wanted it to be a bipartisan matter. And so far, there's no prospect of that. But uh, because the Republicans in the House, as well as the Senate, are both shameless and lawless, they have no instinct at all, apparently, to uphold the law or the Constitution here. But uh, that puts it on the Democrats. Uh, to protect the Constitution and the power of Congress, and it seems as though at last they're stepping up to that. Ellsberg gives a history lesson describing how Watergate unfolded after the Saturday night massacre when Nixon ordered the firing of the special prosecutor investigating Watergate. He said it parallels the case against Trump. Attorney General Elliot Richardson refused to do that and had to resign or was fired. He was replaced by Ruckel's house, who also refused to fire the special prosecutor. And the issue there was whether they would get the tapes. Then, when uh, because of enormous public protest um, at that point, what was known as the Saturday uh, against what was known as the Saturday Night Massacre, there was what Hague called a firestorm of protest 
of telegrams and phone calls at that time. And uh, he really had to hire another special prosecutor, after all, who in turn demanded the tapes. And uh, that went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, ordered him to comply. And at that point, it wasn't quite clear whether it was in question, whether Nixon would actually comply with that or not. But in the end, uh, after some hesitation, he did say he would comply with the Supreme Court. Notice the Supreme Court got into it. In this case, so far, no court has, has ruled on it. But in short, over and over again in Watergate, uh, there was very much a, well, the president resisted very strongly uh, giving various documents over to Congress and uh, uh, in the end capitulated and that led to his facing impeachment and he resigned and instead of uh, putting the country through an impeachment process which he was almost sure to lose. Now a big difference there is that uh, he would have lost in the Senate then with the help of Republicans who would have turned against him. Goldwater, Senator Goldwater and others told him that Republicans uh, would vote against him in the Senate. We have no such indication now. So in this case, the president can feel quite assured that he will not actually be convicted. But at the same point, uh, he would be impeached, which is like indictment, but he wouldn't be convicted. However, the process of the impeachment would almost surely bring out people uh, bring out evidence, I'm sorry, that would uh, impugn him very seriously, would probably incriminate him. And uh, uh, even though the Senate then acquitted him, uh, the question is, a, a question is how that would affect voters and would it bring Republican voters to the polls in such numbers as to reelect him? That's obviously what uh, Nancy Pelosi worries about. But we do have a question there where if you don't impeach him, uh, the House is, uh, in hopes of an electoral result, is ignoring or passing up very clear violations of his oath of office and uh, the Constitution. It appears that the Democrats are now ready to take whatever risk there is uh, in impeaching him in terms of the election in order to take a stand. And Daniel Ellsberg is the former defense analyst and whistleblower who leaked the Pentagon Papers, the secret State Department review of the Vietnam War. And that's the news for Sunday afternoon, April 16, 2023. The news is produced and written by this reporter. It's available on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, and at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.